It's five o'clock on a Thursday, which means it's time for Throwback Thursday 1991. When we get, we get back, we're going to be talking all about uh, a few events that took place in 1991, including uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are an absolutely fascinating topic. That'll be right after the break when we come back from this song from 1991, Better by Screaming Jets.
Tonight on Throwback Thursday, as Tune FM celebrates 50 years, 1991. Boris Yeltsin flew into Alma-Ata today in buoyant mood. He had come to bury the Soviet Union and to build the new Commonwealth. We're going to talk about three very significant events in history, including the unveiling of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and the arrest of Jeffrey Dahmer. Police won't confirm a newspaper report that Dahmer has confessed to murder and cannibalism. One longtime acquaintance describes Dahmer as one weird dude. A neighbor offered a similar description. All that and more coming up on this edition of Throwback Thursday, 1991, as Tune FM celebrates 50 years. You certainly are listening to Tune FM's Throwback Thursday. My name is Jake. I'm your host as per usual, and we're going to go through the year 1991, a very interesting year in history, particularly political history, and also some uh, rather interesting events in religious history, and uh, certainly an event that is going to intrigue some of you, I'm sure, uh, that we're going to talk about at the end of the show. First up, we're going to be talking about uh, that bit of religious history, the unveiling of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are a fascinating uh, text. We're going to be talking about that first up. Coming up after the first song break, we'll be talking about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, which finally came to an end in 1991. And we'll finish up by talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, a notorious killer whose arrest took place in 1991. But let's start with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're an ancient Jewish religious manuscript that were found in the Qumran caves in the Judean desert, uh, which in what is currently the, the West Bank in a disputed territory between Israel and Palestine. Scholarly consensus dates the scrolls from the last three centuries BCE and the first century CE. Uh, they were discovered in between the years 1946 and 1947, and then uh, 1956. So uh, in that kind of decade between 1946 and 1956, uh, various uh, scrolls were found in that area around the Dead Sea. Uh, the reason that we're going to talk about them in terms of 1991 is that that is the year that they were first unveiled and uh, available to the public. They're actually kept uh, in Israel. They are uh, held by the Israel Antiquities Authority in a temperature-controlled laboratory for the storage and preservation of the scrolls. Uh, the actions and preservation methods of uh, staff from the Rockefeller Museum were concentrated on the removal of tape, oils, metals, salt, and other contaminants. The fragments and scrolls are preserved using acid-free cardboard, and they're stored in cylinder boxes in a climate-controlled storage area. Uh, there's various different artifacts found throughout the world of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there's jars found in Jordan. There's uh, uh, all sorts of things all over the place that you can you can see in various different uh, museums around, particularly that area around uh, Israel, Palestine, and, and the West Bank and that kind of area. Uh, so many thousands of these written fragments have been discovered of the Dead Sea Scrolls in that Dead Sea area. They uh, all represent remnants of these larger manuscripts that were obviously damaged by natural causes or perhaps through f human interference. Uh, and the vast majority of what we've found only contains very small scraps of text. However, there, we do have a small number of very well-preserved, almost intact manuscripts, uh, but there are fewer than a dozen among those from the Qumran Caves. Owing to the poor condition of some of the scrolls, scholars actually haven't identified all of what is actually in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the identified texts, the ones that we do know about, fall into three general groups. Uh, 
about 40% are copies of texts from the Hebrew Scriptures, so stuff that we've already uh, seen and got in uh, the the Old Testament or the Torah, if you are of the, the Jewish faith. Uh, another 30% are texts from the Second Temple period, which were not canonized in the Hebrew Bible, such as the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Tibet, uh the Wisdom of Sirach, and Psalms 152 to 155. So these are religious texts as well, written by uh, the Jew- people of the Jewish faith that were not then canonized into the Bible, um, so for, for whatever reason. Um, now, obviously, that's a, a totally different debate, and that's all up for um, for, for controversial discussion. But uh, though that's another thirty percent of them. The remainder, the other roughly thirty percent, are sectarian manuscripts of previously unknown documents that shed light on the rules and beliefs of a particular sect of um, Greater Judaism, such as the Community Rule, the War Scroll, the Pesher on Habakkuk, and the Rule of the Blessing. So these th- these are rules of a particular sect of Judaism, just like we've got. Uh, you know, when you've got Christianity today, you have your Catholicism, you have Anglicanism, you have Presbyterianism, uh, all of those different uh, groups of essentially the same religion. Um, Judaism had the same thing and has had for quite a long time. Um, so that these are the particular rules of this particular uh, group. So uh, they were initially discovered, as we said, uh, around 1946-1947 by a shepherd, as a matter of fact. Uh, A group of shepherds found seven scrolls housed in jars in a cave near what is now known as the Qumran site. Uh, and that was sometime between 1946 and 1947. Soon archaeologists were obviously uh, struck with with interest, and between then and 1956, there were excavations in Qumran and discoveries of new caves that led to the discoveries of more fragments of these texts uh, and more, uh, a few more of the full uh, manuscripts as well. In February 2017, actually, there was uh, a 12th cave discovered by Hebrew University archaeologists, and one blank parchment was found in a jar. However, there were just broken and empty scroll jars and pickaxes uh, lying around, so it suggests that the cave was actually looted in the 1950s at some stage, which is rather disappointing considering that some of the the fragments uh, might have completely gone missing off of our radars, and that would be... uh, that's that's very unfortunate uh, indeed, but there's there are these incredible uh, religious texts that and and probably one of the most historical um, discoveries in terms of archaeological uh, discoveries of religious texts. Uh, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these scripts and uh, fragments of scripts dating back to uh, even centuries before Christ himself. So it's uh, a rather uh, interesting discovery, and of course, 1991 is the year that they were unveiled to the public and are uh, held in storage and preservation uh, for th- the world to see. Uh, essentially, so uh, what a what a wonderful time that was. You're listening to uh, Throwback Thursday, 1991, here on 106.9 Tune FM. When we come back, we're going to talk about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is going to take up a bit of time because, oh my, it is an interesting political period. So don't go anywhere. That'll be right after this song from 1991. You might recognize it.
That was the Shoop Shoop song by Cher. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, and this is Throwback Thursday 1991. And oh boy, we've got a topic to talk about now. The dissolution of the Soviet Union. The internal disintegration of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics began in the late 1980s, as a matter of fact, but it all came to an end on the 26th of December 1991 when the Supreme Soviet voted to dissolve. The Soviet Union was very was a very, very big country. Obviously, uh, Russia still is a very, very big country, but um, even, it was even bigger, as a matter of fact, uh, than it what that it is today. Of course, it was the uh, the leading communist power in the world. Um, it was essentially the anti-United States, the other side of the of that coin in terms of um, the two large world powers throughout the latter half of the twentieth century, and. Uh, over a, a period of a few years, of course, uh, it all came to a head and actually uh, completely dissolved. There were a number of countries that essentially became countries, former Soviet republics that became uh, independent as a result of uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That includes countries such as Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, multiple of the Stan countries, including Turkmenistan. Uh, and then you've got a lot of the Eastern Bloc as well, including countries like Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, lots of former Soviet republics becoming independent. Some of them have kept close close links with Russia, notably Belarus have a very strong relationship with Russia, and some not so much, notably Ukraine, uh, have had a little bit of a, a strenuous relationship with Russia since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, so in the late 1980s, there was real growing unrest in the various constituent republics. Um, there was a, a, a attempt at a communist coup, actually, in August 1991, when Soviet government and military elites tried to overthrow President Mikhail Gorbachev to uh, stop the parade of sovereignties, they called it. And they uh, they led it led to the central government in Moscow losing most of its influence and the individual Soviet republics procla proclaiming independence in the following days and months. Um, the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia seceded in September of 1991, and the Soviet government just recognized that. And then the Belovasia Accords were signed by the republics of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus on the 8th of December, recognizing each other's independence. The remaining republics, with the exception of Georgia, joined the CIS on the 21st of December, signing the Alma-Ata Protocol. Uh, and then Georgia would leave later on. Uh, multiple of them would move towards EU and NATO membership, uh, leaving Russia aside. But uh, perhaps the most famous image coming from the dissolution of the Soviet Union is the famous image on Christmas Day of 1991 of the Soviet flag being lowered from the Kremlin and being replaced with the flag of Russia that we know today. Uh, it's uh, rather, uh, it's what a what a historic moment that was. As we mentioned, we're going to, we're going to go into a little bit more detail about uh, countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, of course. Um, the Baltic states and the former Eastern Bloc countries all went off and joined NATO and the European Union, which Russia still hasn't done and probably has no interest in doing. Um, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine are the three that have distanced themselves from Russia. 
the most. Obviously, Ukraine, we've seen that quite publicly. There's been a lot of unrest between Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, Georgia and Moldova also have distanced their relations from Russia quite a bit. But as we mentioned, Belarus uh, have very strong ties to Russia. There is a, a almost a they almost kind of observe still being part of some sort of union in a way. They have a, an open border where they can travel uh, in between one another. Uh, citizens of Russia can travel into Belarus without a visa or passport or anything like that and vice versa. Um, it's so, so they have a very strong relationship, kind of like what we have with uh, New Zealand. Um, th so this this massive, massive country, when you look at it on a map and you include those former Soviet republics, it was this huge huge country. There's no way I'm going to be able to go through all of exactly what happened as part of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm looking at a page right now that goes on for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages in terms of uh, what actually happened. But essentially, all you need to know is that the the, the government in Moscow started to lose a lot of in. Um, influence because of the fact that um, there was unrest against them and and the Republic saw that as an opportunity to uh, to quit um, so uh, we'll talk about actually the consequences and the impact rather than going into exactly what happened um, the breakup of the Soviet Union saw a massive impact in the sporting world for a start um, before it dissolved, the Soviet Union had qualified for the European Championships of Football, uh, so they had to take have their place taken by what was called the CIS National Football Team, uh, which was a transitional national team between the Soviet Union national team and the Russian national team. Similar things happened with the Olympics. They uh, they they couldn't really do much there in terms of um, the fact that. They no longer existed as a country while there were all of these new countries that suddenly existed. Um, there's, in terms of uh, telecommunications, it, uh, it caused a little bit of a disaster there because there had to be new calling codes for multiple different countries. Russia and Kazakhstan have kept the calling code of plus seven, but between 1993 and 1997, many implemented their own numbering plans. Belarus are now plus 375, Ukraine are plus 380. The internet domain .su remains in use alongside the internet domains of the newly created countries, which is rather interesting because we talked about last week uh, the fact that the internet was first coming to be in uh, you know around 1990. So it's interesting that something that happened so early on in the development of the World Wide Web uh, has stuck today, even in uh, all of those countries that have not been a part of the Soviet Union for quite a long time. Those countries that we mentioned, um, so on the 6th of September 1991 was the uh, Baltic nations that uh, left the Soviet Union. They are Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. On the 26th of December 1991, uh, Azerbaijan, there was a place called the Gagaus Republic, which was peacefully reincorporated into Moldova in 1995. There was Georgia, there was Russia, there was Uzbekistan, there was Moldova, the Ukraine, Belarus, Turkmenistan, Armenia, and Tajikistan. Um, the Abkhaz Republic, now this is a controversial one because they seceded from Georgia 
Uh, but they have very limited recognition in the world at the moment as a sovereign nation. Since around 2008, people don't really uh, recognize that. The same is, is true for Tatarstan. Um, Kazakhstan would secede on Boxing Day 1991 as well, as would Kyrgyzstan. And there's a bunch of other kind of... Uh, controversial places like Crimea, uh, that sort of thing, where we won't go into the controversy uh, around that. Um, there's a lot of controversy over whether the collapse of the Soviet Union was a net good or a net bad. Now, obviously, uh, we live on the side of the world that was sided with the United States throughout much of the Cold War, and we kind of saw the Soviet Union as this great enemy. So the, the collapse of communism uh, in the Soviet Union would certainly not be seen as a bad thing from our perspective. But um, there was a little bit of um, an, an issue for particularly the former Soviet republics who then had to establish their own economies, had to establish their world in, uh, in politics all on their own. In Armenia, 12% of respondents said that the collapse did good, while 66% said that it did harm. In Kyrgyzstan, it was 16% good and 61% harm. Uh, ever since the collapse of the USSR, annual polling by the Levada Center has shown that over 50% of Russia's population has regretted the collapse, with the only exception where the majority thought that it was a good thing was in 2012. A 2018 poll showed that 66% of Russians lamented the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, of course, they still do have a lot of adulation for some of the Soviet leaders. We will say that uh, particularly Joseph Stalin has rather been uh, pushed aside to, to, to history because of uh, some atrocities that he obviously committed. But there is certainly a celebration of Vladimir Lenin uh, um, among much of the, the Soviet states. There is a, a very famous giant statue of Vladimir Lenin in Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan. Um, and so it's, it's rather controversial in, in that part of the world, even in those countries that are no longer communist or that are now um, rather well allied to the United States um, or have developed well after the Soviet, collapse of the Soviet Union. There does seem to be a little bit of um, backlash towards it. The big reason for that in Russia is that the breakdown of economic ties uh, caused a, an economic collapse in some of the post-Soviet states, and particularly Russia, which was even worse than the Great Depression. Poverty and economic inequality surged between 1988 and 1995, the Gini ratio increasing by an average of nine points for all former socialist countries. Even before Russia's financial crisis in 1998, Russia's GDP was half of what it had been in the early 1990s. In the decades following the end of the Cold War, only five or six of the post-communist states were on a path to joining the wealthy capitalist West, while most of them were falling behind. The United Nations membership was another controversial point, and this is the one that we will finish on. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was president of the Russian Federation uh, as of the end of 1991, informed the United, Station, United Nations Secretary General that the membership of the Soviet Union and the Security Council and all other UN organs was going to be continued by Russia. So that Russia would um, take over the, the Soviet Union's spot in uh, the United Nations. All of the other uh, 11 countries supported that move. There was no controversy there. Uh, but since then, 
The other 12 have had to be established in the UN all on their own. It took in September 1991, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania found their way in. They are probably uh, the ones that have found themselves most well off uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, 1992, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan all uh, got their places in the UN. It took until July 1992 for Georgia to get their place in the UN. Uh, but of course, the establishment of all these different countries that have uh, have come about as the as the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we're going to see a very different Russia emerge in the coming weeks as we move into uh, the, the, the 1990s because... While Russia is no longer communist and, and the, the leading uh, world power, the opposite side of the coin to the United States, as, as I put it at the start of the show, they still have uh, their place in, in history and their own controversies in different ways. And we're going to uh, talk about that, I'm sure, in, com- in coming weeks. But for now, we'll go to another song from 1991. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back with you right after this song.
That was I'd Do It For You by Brian Adams as we look at the year 1991 here on 106.9 Tune FM. We're now going to talk about something that's going to be a little bit uh, darker and uh, certainly more upsetting, but something that I'm sure will fascinate a lot of us. I know that there's a, a real fascination with the minds of people who do things such as serial killers and, and, and those sorts of criminals. And um, we're going to talk about one of the most notorious in history who was arrested in 1991, and that is Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, quite a twisted individual, and we're about to talk about uh, exactly what it was that made him such a twisted and uh, messed up individual, really, is the only way you can put it. He was also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal or the Milwaukee Monster. He committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. Uh, many of his later mur murders would involve necrophilia and cannibalism and the permanent preservation of body parts, typically all or part of the skeleton. He was, he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, schizotypal uh, personality disorder, and a psychotic disorder, but he was found to be legally sane at his trial. 
Um, and he was uh, sentenced not to death, as a matter of fact, but to 16 terms of life imprisonment. Uh, he was initially uh, sentenced to 15, but was later sentenced to a 16th term for an additional homicide uh, that was uh, found out about that had been committed in Ohio in 1978. But he is uh, now dead. He was uh, beaten to death by a fellow inmate at the Columbia Correctional Institute in Portage, Wisconsin in 1994. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why this man was so notorious and why he's uh, one of the most well-known serial killers in history up there with the likes of, of Ted Bundy. He committed his first murder in 1978, just three weeks after graduating from high school. Um, it was a really twisted uh, kind of murder. He uh, picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Mark Hicks, who was about 19 years old. Uh, lured him to his house on the pretext that they would have a couple of drinks together. Uh, Hicks had been hitchhiking to a rock concert uh, and he agreed to accompany Dharma to his house. They uh, had several hours where they drank and listened to music and then Hicks wanted to leave and Dharma didn't want him to. So Dharma bludgeoned him with a 10 pound dumbbell and later uh, struck him, so struck him twice from behind with this dumbbell. And when he fell unconscious, he strangled him to death with the bar of the dumbbell. Um, after uh, that murder, he uh, dissected the body in his basement and buried the remains in a shallow grave in his backyard before several weeks later unearthing the remains, peeling the flesh off the bones, dissolving the flesh in acid before flushing that solution down the toilet and crushing the bones with a sledgehammer and scattering them in the woodland behind his family home. He would commit, uh, obviously, as we mentioned, uh, 15 murders, 16 once they uh, found out about the one in Ohio in 1978. Um, he would be captured on the 22nd of July, 1991. We're going to talk about his capture rather than going through uh, his twisted history because he is a very very messed up individual. Um, but on the 22nd of July, 1991 is when he was finally captured. He approached three men with an offer of $100 to accompany him to his apartment for uh, uh, some rather intimate activities and also to drink beer and simply keep him company. One of the trio agreed to accompany him to his apartment. Um, but upon entering his apartment, he noted a foul odor and several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which Dharma claimed to use for cleaning bricks. After some minor conversation, uh, he responded to Dharma's request to turn his head and view his tropical fish, where after that, Dharma placed a handcuff on his wrist. Wrist. When he asked what's happening, Dharma unsuccessfully attempted to cuff his wrists together and then told him to accompany him to the bedroom to pose for some nude pictures. While inside the bedroom, um, there was a, a videotape of The Exorcist 3 that was playing, and he also noted a blue 57-gallon drum in the corner, which is where that strong smell was from. He would end up uh, he would end up escaping by uh, punching him in the face, knocking him off balance, and running out the front door. Uh, and he would flag down two Milwaukee police officers uh, at later that night. They noted that he had a handcuff attached to his wrist, um, and they managed to uh, uh, locate him, find him, and arrest him. He actually made a confession uh, in the early hours of the 23rd of July, 1991, uh, after he was questioned by Detective Patrick Kennedy as to the murders that he had committed. 
and he was indicted with four counts of first-degree murder on the 25th of July, 1991. By the 22nd of August, he had been charged with a further 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. By the 14th, investigators in Ohio having uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in woodland behind the address in which Dharma had confessed to killing his first victim, uh, obviously indicted him with, uh, charged him with that other um, murder, that first murder of his, um, and he would be sentenced to those uh, initially 15 and then 16 uh, life sentences. He's become one of the most notorious uh, serial killers of all time. He's been see uh, featured in uh, several films, um, including um, The Secret Life, Jeffrey Dahmer. There was a biographical film called Dahmer starring Jeremy Renner in the titular role, released in 2002. In 2006 was the movie Raising Jeffrey Dahmer, which revolved around the reactions of his parents following his arrest in 1991. There was an independent documentary, The Jeffrey Dahmer Files, in 2012, and My Friend Dahmer in 2017, based on the graphic novel by John Bachdorf. He's been featured in many books, television, theater, uh, all over the place. He's one of the most notorious serial killers in not only American, but in world history. Uh, as I said, up there with uh, the likes of uh, Ted Bundy and those those sorts of names. So a, a very, very twisted individual who was finally brought to justice and arrested uh, in 1991. So I would say that is definitely a very good moment in history uh, that we will uh, celebrate and look back on as we look at the year 1991. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you here on Throwback Thursday on 106.9 Tune FM. Don't forget to join us at the same time next week. We're on every Thursday from 5 o'clock next week. We're going to be talking about the year 1992, of course. Uh, don't forget to join us tomorrow, 5 o'clock, Jake Breaks the News, and at 6 o'clock we will have the weekly review. Plenty to come on Tune FM in the coming hours, so don't change that radio dial, and we'll go right back to the music. I hope you're enjoying your evening, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.